Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Circle Sanctuary Network Podcasts, brought to you by Circle Sanctuary, one of the oldest nature spirituality churches in the United States, connecting people of nature center paths around the world. Join us through the week for a variety of shows discussing various topics, celebrating the divine in all of its forms through nature worship, rituals, education, and building bridges of community. Welcome to Nature Magic. This is Selena Fox. And tonight, we have a special show. We explore changing climate change. We're doing this podcast as a way to share information and perspectives about environmental issues facing us all around the world, not only now, but in the years to come and in particular, environmental issues that are known as climate change. We are doing this podcast as part of the greater series of events, projects, discussions, art installations, meetings, and other activities that are being held in Paris, France, this first part of December 2015, as well as around the world in connection with the United Nations Climate Summit, also known as COP21. We hope that this will not only be informative to those of you who are listening live and who will be listening later, but that our words tonight will stimulate discussions and, most importantly, collaborative and effective actions. Joining me tonight is my husband, Dennis. He is Dr. Dennis Carpenter, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin Richland Center. He also is the chair of the Department of Psychology and Education for the 13 colleges in the University of Wisconsin system. Tonight, we're going to share a version of our presentation, Eco-Psychology and Climate Change. We did this presentation a 90-minute version, at the Parliament of the World's Religions in mid-October 2015 in Salt Lake City, Utah. We are sharing with you some of the things that we presented at that workshop, and we'll also be sharing some additional perspectives that have unfolded since then. So thank you all for tuning in, and I welcome my husband Dennis to Nature Magic. 
and have him begin our journey in exploring changing climate change. Good evening, everybody. One of the things that's really perplexed me for quite some time is the fact that we seem to have a scientific consensus that uh, global climate change is real and is happening and, in fact, seems to be having an impact in faster and dramatic ways than predicted not too long ago. In fact, it's been estimated that approximately 97% of uh, scientists are in agreement that climate change is happening. Yet, when we look around us, we tend to see very little action. And in fact, in the United States, we see a lot of people denying the fact that climate change is happening or saying things to the effect of, we're not scientists, therefore we can't draw a conclusion about this. And in saying that, I'm referring to certain politicians uh, in our country. It was refreshing to be a part of the Parliament of the World's Religions where a, a theme, um, one of the major themes of the event was a focus on climate change. And in fact, that organization published an interfaith call to action on climate change as a part of this year's parliament. And I'd just like to read a short excerpt from that. Earth is one interconnected whole. What we do to the earth, we do to ourselves. Earth is our home. We have nowhere else to go, and time is running out. We affirm these values and principles. We are profoundly interconnected with nature on which we depend for our existence. We must respect and care for nature and all life. So it was really a great experience to be part of an event that held those kinds of ideas. Um, it was inspiring to do that. It's inspiring to see so many countries of the world coming together at the Climate Summit in Paris, France, with uh, a commitment to try to come together and to um, implement some kind of meaningful agreement that will bring carbon um, production and uh, proliferation in the atmosphere within some kind of limits. So I'd like to share some challenges to changing climate change and some possible solutions and then we'll talk a bit about eco-psychology because part of what is critical to move humankind forward in collaboration and effective action is to really understand some of the dynamics of humankind's perceiving the environment and coming to terms with ways 
to be in harmony with the greater web of life of which we're all part, and more importantly, to urgently come together to take some kind of action. So what are some challenges to changing climate change? The first is a lack of understanding about the situation and the science behind it. Another, a lack of understanding the urgency to get the facts, to formulate plans, to collaborate, and take corrective action. Another challenge is that too often decision-making at an individual, at a household, at a small group, and yes, even larger community and regions and nations, levels, really get focused on immediacies. Well, I'm not being affected right now, so it's not important to do anything. I think some of that comes from the fact that with the world can, um, continuing to be wired, interconnected, people surfing the web, using mobile devices to communicate with each other, shifting from one thing to the other, being in a present communication state, one doesn't always have the understanding of the bigger picture. And I think that sometimes even when one may be impacted, one may not be really understanding the connections. China right now and parts of India are having intense smog problems. China is the largest emitter of carbon emissions. India is third. The United States is second. In India and in China, environmental controls um, are not in place. Coal is cheap. That's being used to as a big energy source and with disastrous results. It was so bad today in Beijing that they were at a code orange, which meant that kids weren't going into schools, people had to wear masks. In some parts of India today, it was so smoggy, one couldn't even see but a few feet in front of one's face. This smog is a direct result of human-created carbon emissions. We need to not only find some solutions for those areas, but for the world as a whole. 
So even in some places where the smog is bad, there's some people who are still not getting it, that this is a problem that really needs to be fixed. Another challenge has to do with the problem of political expediency. What is possible? Where is the political will? And does what's politically possible match what is physically necessary? In most cases, no. In fact, 180 countries made pledges to reduce carbon emissions by October 1st. They submitted their pledge in preparation for this COP21 climate summit. It's still not getting the world where it needs to go if all of those pledges were kept. So there's the politics that is a big challenge to changing climate change. We also have the problem that climate change is not impacting the world uniformly or continually in a way that is perceived. Indeed, the countries and places in the world that are emitting the least carbon are on the first line of the climate change impact. These include island nations in the Pacific and some other places. And these places that are not emitting that much carbon and that are likely to be hit by sea level rise and other issues also don't have the financial resources to be able to get renewable energy, to get sea walls built, to relocate places further off the coastline, I'm happy to report that today France and some other European Union countries have pledged some money to help places in Africa with renewables. And there are also several projects in the works to fund greening um, energy sources around the world. So these are some of the challenges, not all of the challenges, and how do we meet them? We need to get better information about how science works and get more understanding amongst humankind, especially people out in the public sector, in the U.S. and some other places that are putting out outright misinformation, disinformation, incorrect analysis of what's going on. We need to wake people up and find ways to get the attention of this situation 
more attention. We also need at a grassroots level to do political maneuvering to increase the pressure on those in various positions of making decisions, not only government officials, but multinational corporations, to not just greenwash, but to actually take some effective action that's going to put us in a corrective way. And we do need to come up with strategies for the countries that are known as developing countries that really have a need to get electricity and heat and other resources to their population and to use renewables rather than the cheaper fossil fuels that may be more available. So I shift now and Dennis will share some thoughts about eco-psychology and climate change. I'd like to start by emphasizing the role that politics and economics play in the United States around this issue. Um, as you probably know, Al Gore was a very um, uh, outspoken and valuable uh, messenger regarding climate change uh, fairly early on in our country giving that attention. And I think that that plays a role in the fact that it has become a Republican-Democratic issue with uh, Democratic politicians and voters tending to um, accept climate science and believe that action is warranted, and Republican politicians and voters tending to deny that the problem exists or be unwilling to uh, address it. Uh, we can't underestimate the power of um, uh, business interests who are invested in um, carbon technologies and uh, the mining and sale and use of coal. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how these dynamics play themselves out in the Paris summit and the aftermath of whatever happens there in the United States. What I'd like to talk a little bit about are some of the reasons that I think that people have a difficult time wrapping their brain around this issue. And I'd like to build upon the theme that I uh, expressed earlier inherent in that uh, call to action on climate change at the parliament and talk a little bit about the theme of interconnectedness. You know, I think too often people tend to believe that we're separate from nature, that we're separate from each other, when in fact we're all very profoundly interconnected with each other. And that holistic sense of interconnectedness, I think, is hard for many people to, to grasp. 
You know, John Muir, the famous environmentalist, said, when one tugs at a single thing in nature, he finds it attached to the rest of the world. And so um, I think that's a significant uh, issue that, you know, when people think about increasing climate temperature, the inclination is to engage in what I call kind of straight-line, single-variable causal thinking. And by what I mean by that is that individuals who, you know, if climate change is happening and warming is happening, then it should be warmer all the time everywhere. And what they don't realize is that when we look at it from a, a holistic systems perspective, what increasing temperature is, is one variable in a complex web of interconnected variables. So by manipulating temperature, we create volatility and unpredictability and more extremes in in climate. And I think we've been seeing some of those extremes in recent weather uh, trends. I was, um, Selene and I were at Assateague Island National Seashore on the eastern shore of Maryland this summer and we stopped at the visitor center and there were some young interns out on the deck and um, they were giving a pre presentation on the presence of Portuguese men of war off the coast of Assateague Island, and they had a specimen, a live specimen of one of those creatures in a tank. And they were talking about the fact that this creature tends to prefer warmer uh, water, typically found more to the south, but that in recent years, they had been noticing a migration of the Portuguese men of war further north into areas uh, near Assateague. And they talked about the fact that climate change trends were contributing to the warmer waters off the coast of Assateague Island and were likely uh, contributing to seeing the Portuguese men, in, men of war. And at that point, an older woman came bounding up from toward the back and she approached the tank and the interns very aggressively and yelled something about why are ice breaking vessels needed in the Arctic to break through the ice if global warming is happening. So she apparently had seen some kind of newscast where uh, at the particular time of the year, they were using these vessels. So it, in her way of thinking, that that shouldn't be possible if the temperatures are warming. And so that was such a poignant example of that kind of what I, I'm calling that straight line causality is warmer temperatures equals warmer conditions everywhere all the time. For those of us living in the Midwest and the Eastern United States, we have to only look over the, a couple winters ago when we had one of the longest and the coldest winters in a long, long time. And they were referring to it as a polar vortex 
down over the United States. Well, my understanding is that in the volatility of systems changing, that there may be an explanation for why the polar cold is coming down over the United States more. So maybe in the United States in the future we have colder than normal winters, while other places have warmer than normal places. The key, though, is that the overall temperature of the planet is increasing. We're about to set a record for 2015 being the hottest on record. But again, even despite that, we see these unpredictable extremes in weather conditions. And in the last 20 years, 14 of those years have been the warmest on record. So the planet as a whole is heating up. And species, plants, and creatures are disappearing every day, going extinct. There are some scientists that are causing this, basically calling this phenomena a great extinction, and one species, humans, are the cause of this. So in addition to there's a heating up overall going on, and extreme weather situations happening in some parts of the world, we also are having the very web of life, the interconnected web of life, with thousands of species of plants and animals, all being part of this wonderful system called the web of life, Holes are being torn in this web of life through climate change. Another point I'd like to talk about is I think that another factor behind the denial of this situation has to do with some misunderstandings about how science works. To me, science is a communal, collective kind of process that researchers coming from a variety of directions study phenomenon, and over time, the evidence accumulates, and generally consensus is reached about certain issues. So, you know, you read that 97% of scientists agree that global climate change is happening. However, what I've seen politicians doing is grabbing on to some scientists and their study in that 3%, holding it up and waving it around and saying, see, here is proof that this is not happening. And they don't realize that the power of that consensus and the minority view aspects of those studies. And I think another thing that contributes to that is the way media treats the issue. So media likes controversy. So if the media shows somebody who is uh, uh, talking about the idea of climate change, they want to do the counterpoint and bring on one of the uh, minority climate-denying uh, viewpoints. And what that does for the American public is it 
essentially creates in their perception an equivalence of perspectives that somehow the pros regarding climate change are on a similar par to the cons of of climate change when in fact the balance is, is greatly tilted in favor of the uh, evidence suggesting climate change is happening. So I think there's some misconceptions about how the community of scientists works and that that is fueled in part by how the media frames uh, debates for American consumption. I think it's really important to learn the facts and to be aware of differing viewpoints. So in addition to doing personal education, it's also important to do interpersonal communication. And when you hear information that really is reflecting something that's blatantly inaccurate or distorted, to have some good ways of being able to challenge it and to offer some corrective feedback. Rather than getting into a battle, I'm right, you're wrong, to bring some additional information and facts into the conversation. And this would be not only conversations around the water cooler at work or the lunch table at a school or some other place where you're encountering others that you know, but in the vast world of cyberspace, the blogosphere, social media, to find ways of introducing correct information with examples and documentation and to do it with a means of expanding the information that's part of the conversation rather than putting someone down to just basically add some additional information and to do it in a civil and intelligent manner. Unfortunately, there are some people, including um, some people running for president in the United States of America right now, that are climate deniers that are putting out ridiculous statements and are going unchallenged, unchallenged by their colleagues, unchallenged by other people. So it's important to be aware of conversations in the public square and as one feels up to it, to be able to give some additional information and to not allow lies and distortions to persist unchallenged. And most importantly, when the time comes to vote, 
to be an informed voter and to vote for those people that really are basing their decision-making for the larger community that they're representing on best information and that are willing to listen and dialogue rather than bluster. You know, when I was at the um, Parliament in that bubble with so many people who were talking about the issue and the urgency of the issue and optimism that if we acted in big ways uh, quickly that these kinds of problems could be brought under control. When I left that bubble and came back to Wisconsin and, and re-entered day-to-day life, it was almost jarring to me that nobody was talking about the issue. Nobody seemed that concerned about the issue. When I would bring it up in conversation, it was not real enthusiastically received. And I think that there are some psychological components to why this is a, a difficult problem for people to wrap their brains around. And I just like to give some a couple of examples of how the field of psychology has investigated this issue. One of the first points I'll make is that I think that it's, it's easy for people to get lost in the complexity of the issue, that this is such a big issue, that how could I make a difference? And even those who take steps to make a difference In cognitive psychology, they've identified something called the single action bias. And that bias is that folks who take one step tend to think that that's enough. So, for example, most of us recycle these days and and have been for some time. And it's easy to fall into a situation of, well, I'm recycling, I'm doing my part. So part of it is getting the message out there that this is a a big, urgent issue that requires far more than just uh, recycling. Another issue psychologically is that it's fairly well documented that in our evolutionary history here on the planet that our brains have been wired to very quickly detect immediate threats and to respond appropriately. And we know that as uh, the uh, fight or flight systems of the brain that when our brain detects danger, we respond immediately in in dramatic physical kinds of ways to either flee that uh, threat or to uh, fight it. And quite frankly, our brains haven't been hardwired to conceptualize long-term threat. Threat, and we're not talking long-term necessarily, uh, beyond 50 to 100 years where we could be seeing the worst of these kinds of impacts. But that's a long, a long time for humans. And again, our brains aren't wired to help us understand the, 
that nature of, of threat. So those are some examples of how it's a difficult issue for humans to grasp the magnitude of and to, to grasp the urgency of the issue. Well, and I think we can look at the analogy that if you have a cauldron of water, you're heating it on the stove. And if you bring it up to a hot place and then you put something like a bit of wax um, into the water, you may see that wax melt very quickly when it's at that high temperature. However, if you put in a bit of wax into the water and then start heating it up, uh, may not notice that the wax is starting to get soft and starting to melt um, for quite some time. Well, in a way, we are like that piece of wax. We're in a larger environment that is getting hot overall. What does that mean? That means that the ice caps at the North and the South Pole are shrinking. As the ice caps melt, that contributes to sea level rise. And because you have less ice, it compounds itself. And people are um, experiencing in some parts of the world that it is getting warmer, but not uniformly all around it. Another issue has to do with the forest of the planet. And Prince Charles at COP21 focused on forest as the main point that he was sharing with those who are gathered to consider climate change. As humans cut down forests and then burn the wood to clear land and or for fuel, that releases more carbon into the atmosphere and makes the problem worse. However, it's compounded by the fact that the forest, our lungs, for the web of life on planet Earth, they absorb that CO2 that's part of the climate change issues. And when there's less forest to do that, then the system is rather stressed. So if one doesn't live in a forest, I do, one may not have that much of a connection in understanding the importance of a forest. And if one does not make it a point to really look at different sources of information for world events, one may stay ignorant about the bigger picture. So I think another thing that we as individuals can do 
is to make it a priority for ourselves to continue to be informed about what's happening environmentally around the planet, taking, even if it's 10 minutes a day, to go to some Internet news site and to put in climate change or environmental issues and taking a look at not only problems that are appearing and are being um, experienced in different parts of the world, but even more importantly, looking at the solutions that are underway. It's important that we feed our consciousness with not only facts, but perspectives from different points of view, and also be educated about the solutions so that we can get behind supporting effective change. I'd like to build upon a point that Selena mentioned with regard to forests and the experience of forests and talk a little bit about, again, going back to this theme of sensing our interconnectedness with nature. So how do we do that? We do that by being in nature and experiencing nature. Now, I suspect that many of you out there listening to this may uh, identify with some aspect of a pagan worldview and practice where nature is important to you, and in nature you sense a oneness with the rest of the natural world, yet you may derive a sense that we're a part of the natural world, not superior to it. Uh, you may hold an idea that nature is, is sacred and that the divine is imminent throughout all of nature and that nature deserves to exist in and of itself, not just for human consumption. And we know that folks who spend time in nature tend toward this interconnected kind of view. So it's important that we encourage people to get out in nature, to experience nature, and to become committed to saving the natural world that we live in. One of the stats I've encountered recently is that when you look at memberships in environmental organizations like the Sierra Club and others, it's primarily a, a baby boomer uh, population in terms of membership with far fewer numbers of younger people involved. So we have to ask the question, where are we going to get the eco-activists of tomorrow if we're not encouraging these kinds of experiences in nature in our young people? You know, the alarming stats these days also point to the fact that young people are spending up to nine hours or more a day on screens. 
all right, with the various devices that they have available to them. And in doing so, they may be not getting outside in nature. So I think that in terms of getting more people to sense this connection to nature and to see these um, uh, impacts that we're having on the natural world that experiences in nature could go a long ways in helping that. And after all, this is the Nature Magic Podcast, so I also want to share um, that in addition to doing some ongoing education, to doing some communication, spiritual practice is an important part of being an environmental activist. Um, and you might call it spiritual practice, or if one is coming from more of a humanistic space, um, a experience with um, the natural world. But essentially, being able to have as part of one's way of being attunement to nature in the local area where you live, but also attunement to the larger web of life of which we're part. You may call that the earth spirit. You might call it Mother Earth. You might call it Father Earth or Earth Consciousness or Planet Awareness, Biosphere Attunement. The idea is that as part of daily spiritual practice to deepen your connection and resonance with the natural world where you are, but to also tune in to that even larger view, that larger consciousness of which we are a part. For me, this takes the form of going outdoors every day and doing a short ritual in which I align myself with each of the directions. The earth, the um, in the north, the air in the east, the fire in the south, the water in the west, the cosmos above, the planet and land beneath, and the divine spirit in the center that's within and around. A very short ritual that I do every day, but it tunes me in not only to the local area where I'm at, but as I greet the day, I also experience myself as part of that much larger circle of nature of which we're all part. When one does environmental activist work, some of the things that are important to do is have a source of recharging. If you're educating yourself about environmental problems, you can spend quite a bit of time finding out about all the things that aren't going right that need to be fixed, and that can be, frankly, quite depressing. In fact, when we did our eco-psychology and climate change talk, 
we had some questions and answers in the second part of our presentation. And one of the questions I was asked was, well, how do you keep yourself from being depressed when you start really understanding uh, some of the real problems that are going on? Well, I think an important thing is to make sure there's some quality time where you unwire, unplug, and tune in to that larger web of life. And I find doing ritual, doing meditation, chanting, visualizations, nature walks, all of this um, is helpful, can be very helpful. I also think that if one is going to really focus on being an activist for solution, that it's important to pick some particular aspect of the larger issues that are unfolding to focus on and to support. And that can take the form of aligning with a particular organization, a particular project, and to focus on that for a period of time. You might want to, as we go into the calendar year change here, um, for the next year, say, okay, I'm going to really um, focus on working to protect um, the water in my local area and do what I can to learn about it and improve water quality. Or you might pick a particular type of creature and be involved in researching and supporting efforts to protect and preserve that creature. Yes, this is working on particular parts of the larger whole, and um, yet when you get involved with a particular part of a larger project and form alliances with others that are working on this, you can develop a good social network and have some mutual support. And you can see how what you're doing fits the much larger picture of working to change the climate change. I'd like to emphasize the point that Selena made with regard to experiences in nature and the power that those experiences can have. When we go into nature in a mindful kind of way where we slow our mind down and we pay attention to nature around us in a passive kind of way, it's those kinds of experiences that lead to a sense of that interconnectedness that we have with the rest of the natural world. And in fact, many psychologists have written about the notion of an ecologically connected sense of self, that when we do that, that our identity as an individual expands to include the natural world around us. 
And it's from that kind of experience and attitude that that real drives to make a difference can happen. In addition, whatever you're doing in your life on a day-by-day basis, including your efforts to help the environment, it's fairly well documented that in this day and age when we're working on computer screens a lot, we often take breaks by going to other devices. So we might take a break from our work at a computer and check out Facebook. Well, in reality, when we're doing that, we're utilizing the same types of cognitive skills and capacities that are necessary for our work. And so there's been a lot of of work done on the restorative effects of nature experiences where that short walk outside with that passive kind of awareness and attention to the natural world around you, even for a few moments, will leave you in a very refreshed and revitalized state to carry on the important work that you have to do. So if we need a a more selfish interest for being in nature and experiencing nature, that restorative kind of effect is a very valuable one for us. Well, I see we only have a few moments left. I'd like to conclude um, by um, summarizing some things that you can do to help with changing climate change. Get informed. Stay informed. Communicate with others. Collaborate with others. Do ritual and spiritual practice and include as part of that not only an honoring of the divine in nature, but time to receive messages, guidance, to invite guidance to inform your choices of environmental activism. Commune with nature and attune to your local area as well as um, the climate and the environment as a whole. And as these talks continue, I invite you to do your own meditation, prayers, rituals for safety and wisdom and collaboration and effective action to come out of these important talks that are happening in Paris over the next 11 days. And if you haven't already done so, I invite you to go to theclimateribbon.org and to digitally submit a message for the Climate Ribbon Project, which is one of the adjunct activities happening in Paris at this time. Circle Sanctuary is one of the partners of this particular project, and it is using art to help bring forth a greater awareness, not only about what's precious on the planet that needs to be protected, but the need to collaborate and communicate and work together for a better environment. And I'd just like to say that I sure hope that the world leaders who are coming together uh, in this 
week and, and next are truly able to come to some kind of meaningful agreement that will help bring climate change under control. And uh, as we move forward, we all need to figure out the ways that we can to truly help make a difference. So thank you all for listening to this special podcast. I see it as the beginning rather than the end of um, this topic. I invite you to share the link with others and um, to um, be informed about ways that you yourself can be part of the solution rather than the pollution. Well, we're moving into the next part of Circle Internet Radio Evening. I invite you all to stay tuned for a very special show on Circle Talk, Pagan Traditions of Winter Solstice. And I want to give thanks to our Circle radio team, Deborah Rose, David, and Jeanette Ewing. I want to give thanks to Witch School International and the Pagans Tonight Radio Network who make it possible for us to continue this service to the larger pagan world. Many thanks for tuning in. Keep listening. And to take us into Circle Talk, we have The Green Man by Jennifer Cutting an Ocean. So may the music guide us in our conceptualization.
hear the brethren do not grieve. Green man, wild man, wise one. Life and death, an endless chain. Green man, king of the wood. All that falls will rise again. Green man, wild man, wise one. Green man, blessed wood. Oak and ash and thorn. Green man, brotherhood. All will be reborn. All will be reborn. Green man, blessed wood. Oak and ash and thorn. Green man, brotherhood. All will be reborn. All will be reborn. All will be reborn. And thank you for joining us on the Circle Sanctuary Network podcasts, presented by Circle Sanctuary and produced for all who follow the Nature Center paths. Join us here throughout the week for various programming connecting the community around the world. And please don't forget to watch for updates on the Circle Sanctuary website at www.circlesanctuary.org. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash csnpodcasts. We can also be found on your favorite podcast hosting sites, such as iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. And until next time, many blessings. <laughs>